Well, if you have uh, been around in the last month, you know that we have for the past four Sundays, uh, actually the past three Sundays, been in a series, today's the fourth part of a five-part series, entitled Unusual Because Normal Isn't Working. And the theme passage in this series has been and is uh, Matthew 7, 13, and 14. Now, if you've been in church for very long, these are verses that are very familiar to you. And the problem with familiar passages a lot of times is that we become a little bit immune to them from familiarity. You ever get that way that it's like you hear the start of a verse and it's like, yeah, 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 I know how that finishes. And I think we need to hear this passage in a fresh way today because when you step back and consider, this is one of those passages that will redefine a person's worldview. And to just sort of frame what I mean by that, I just want to throw out a thought for you as we begin. And that is, it really has become a pervasive idea, and it's not just in American culture, but it certainly is true in America as well as in other places, that first of all, there's a belief in God or or in gods. There's a belief in deity, and that's almost universal. Most of the world, like 95% of the world, believes that there's a God. And most of the world believes in a good God or good gods, that there's some justice with God. And most everyone believes in some kind of system where we want to be right with God. And we're seeking through religion to be at a place where a couple of things are going to happen. One, we want God to bring blessing and favor in our lives in this lifetime, right? As Church-going Christians, we would agree with that, but religions of the world essentially want that. They want the deity or deities to show favor in this life. And certainly we would all agree on what the second part of that is, that in the afterlife, that God would favor you then. That you certainly want what comes after this life to work out for you, right? And that's pretty much every worldview pretty much involves that kind of thinking. And as a part of that... There's this secondary line of thinking that has become very common, and it essentially looks something like this. If there is a God, and most everyone agrees that there is, and if we're trying to get to God, and we're doing our best to be right with Him and get connected to Him, and if God is good, and He made and controls things, and He would like to have a connection with us, then surely the net result of all this is that it's going to work out. That for most people... It's going to be okay. If there's a good God and He cares about people and if people by and large believe in God and are trying to get to Him, then surely the two shall meet and it's all going to work out and be okay in the end. Would you agree that that generally is the mindset of the world around us? It's going to work out. And that when it's all said and done, religion, regardless of flavor or tag or name, is essentially the same thing and that all faiths, and whatever name that they would put on God, that they're all pursuing the same thing. These are just different ways of thinking about the same God and that ultimately all faiths become different paths to the same God. Now, honestly, that sounds and feels pretty good. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, wouldn't it be a pretty cozy thought if we could just say, oh, great, let's just all coexist with all of our different belief systems and you call God whatever you want to and you have your own belief system about how to get to that God, but we're all going to wind up in this happy, happy ever after place and it'll just all be good. Now let's all join hands and sing Kumbaya together or whatever, you know, we are the world. It sounds good. And it really scares me how much I think this kind of thinking has worked its way even into very much mainstream 
church-going Christian America. That it's like, in the end, surely it just all works out. And hell's really the problem, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, hell is the, hell's the thing that's hard to explain. Hell's the thing that's really hard to be okay with because we haven't known many people who need to go there in our minds, right? I mean, I get it. Osama bin Laden, he can go to hell. He deserves to go to hell. Saddam Hussein, we're good with him going to hell, right? Adolf Hitler, we hope there's a hot place in hell for him, right? I'm not trying to be inflammatory. If you're not agreeing with me, you can, you can voice it. Are you good with me there? We can send those three to hell, and we can probably think of some others that, that belong there with them. The problem is when you get beyond mass murderers, when you get beyond serial killers, I don't think we're too okay with anybody else going to hell. Because, I mean, think about it. In our system, you can do something really bad. And, I mean, you know, like you can be a rapist. And we'll lock you up for maybe five or ten years. And then we'll turn you loose and you can live your life. A lot of times you can kill somebody. And serve ten, twenty, twenty-five years. Then we'll turn you loose and say, just don't do it again. You can do some really, really bad stuff in this life, and we have a justice system where we say, here's the price that you pay for that. But there is nothing in our system that comes close to saying, you do this, this, and this, and you are going to go to a place where for all of eternity it will be darkness, you will be alone, there will be unquenchable flames, there will be worms that never die, it will be torment like you can't imagine, and a thousand years from now there will be no relief in sight. We can't comprehend that. It's like bad, bad, bad to the bad degree. You know, it is... Horrific, and we have a hard time imagining that anybody that we know is really going there, right? I mean, some of you are looking at me like, where are you going with this? But seriously, like, do you know many people that in your sense of justice, you think, oh yeah, hell. They're headed to hell and that would be an appropriate end. If I'm honest, I would just have to say, that's not how my natural mind works. I know the reality of the Scriptures. I know the truth of the situation. But it's like you don't look around at most of the people around you and go, hell, hell, definitely hell, hot part of hell for you. you know, do you? Maybe you do. I just don't. I, I, I don't think as I talk and interact with the world that that's what we think when we look at people. Against that backdrop, hear the words of Jesus. Enter by the narrow gate. For it is a wide gate and a broad road that leads to destruction, literally to hell. And it is a small gate and a narrow way to, that leads to life, and only a few find it. He says, many will enter through the broad gate, many will, will travel the broad road, and only a few will enter through the small gate and travel the narrow road. If you just make yourself be still and ponder that. I really, I've spent a lot of time in the last month pondering this, this one passage. Just trying to let the truth of that sink in. It is a worldview changer. Either Jesus is a liar or our instincts do not serve us well when we look at the world and go, I don't really think I know anybody who deserves to go to hell. I mean, we've, we've kind of joked about it in here before. I have, you know, every funeral you go to, 
Somebody who's a pastor is going to get up and they're going to preach that sucker into heaven no matter how they live their life. I mean, you tell me, how many funerals have you been to that they got up and went, I hate it, but this guy went to hell. I am sorry. He busted it wide open. He is burning today. I have not been to that funeral, and I've been to quite a few funerals. We preach them all into heaven. And it's like somewhere, even within the clergy, you know, there's this mindset of like, you know, it doesn't matter how you lived your life. Somewhere along the way, there was something redeeming and everybody gets to heaven. And we have perpetuated this idea. It's going to be okay for everybody because essentially we're all traveling this road that's going to get to heaven. And that sounds so good until you run into Jesus. And he screws it up. Because he says most people aren't going to get there. Most people are traveling a road together. It feels familiar. They're in company with lots of other people just like them, so they must be okay. But he says, bad news. Most people go to hell. Most people right now that you know, that you work around, that you are related to, are going to hell. They are on a road that leads only to one destination. And he says, there are only a few people who actually enter through the gate and who travel the road that is the road to life. This is one of the most disturbing passages in all the Bible. I can't think of hardly any other place in the Scripture that so explicitly says, most people miss it, few people get it. And this is what they miss and this is what they get. Don't you think that should disturb us a lot? I think that ought to disturb us in church a lot. Because a huge portion of America goes to church. The many and the few obviously are not sorted out along church-going lines. This is not the defining point. Well, in this series, we've been talking about what's normal what's familiar and acceptable, and then what's real. What's so unusual that it's actually what God's about and what God's called us to. The opening line in this passage is maybe the most important line. Enter through the narrow gate. How do you get on the road to life? Well, you don't just choose one day to hop on the road. You don't try harder. You don't get better. You have to enter through a gate. How do you do that? What's the gate? How do you get there? Jesus was very explicit about this. He said in John, I'm the gate. He who enters through me will be saved. Implication, you don't come through me. You don't get on the road to life. You will stay on the road that you were born on. Not a bunch of ways. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Whoever comes to the Father, he comes through me, the way, the gate. So what I want to do today is, is very simple. I want to contrast two ways of thinking. The normal way of thinking about religion, and then I want to just contrast that with the rather unusual way that God has set out to save the world through Jesus. First of all, the normal concept of religion. Religion is the normal way of trying to get to God. It is the normal way of man seeking to get to God. Religion is our attempt to satisfy the deity. Religion is our attempt to earn his favor. It's our attempt to get life beyond this life. 
an improvement when we end this life. Religion is all about what we do. Religion in virtually any form that you can think of it, and you feel free to explore this in, in other faiths, what you'll find is religion is about the exterior stuff that you and I are supposed to do in the hopes that it will satisfy the deity. That God will go, good. I like people who do that. I like people who don't do this. You do enough of this, you avoid enough of that, and I can show you favor. I could give you an upgrade in the next life. That's what religion does. Religion gives you a system designed to reform your external behavior so that you look more like this model, and hopefully that will please God. That's what religion is designed to do. So it is about you doing stuff so that God will feel better about you and treat you differently. You can kind of pick your list. Some people will do that. Some people are so open-minded, and it's more like, I'm going to pick the things that I'm willing to do and then find a religion to fit it. And so, you know, people can go out and find their faith. And, you know, all religions have got their list, their list of the external stuff. You know, for some, it's all that you've got to cover on your body. Others, it's, you know, you don't watch rated R movies and you don't dance and you don't drink alcohol. For some, it's you don't drink caffeine, you don't curse, a lot of don't lists. For some, it's all about, you know, you've got to, how much you've got to give and how much you've got to fast and how much you've got to pray, how many times a day you need to pray, what direction you face when you pray. For some, it's about getting dunked. For some, it's about getting sprinkled. I mean, you realize there are more flavors than Baskin-Robbins with all of its toppings can offer. Religion has got all of these lists that are about exterior stuff. And you can do religion and feel better about yourself. You really can. Now, for some of us, that doesn't work out so well. But you, you have the potential to sort of improve your look with religion. And you get around other people, provide some positive reinforcement, and you actually can start looking better. And you might start feeling better about yourself. That your odds are better with God. That's a really dangerous proposition. But you could feel that way. Unless you bump into Jesus. And then he'll blow it all up. He just does that. Jesus blows up religion. Because here's the thing with Jesus. When you encounter the Jesus in Scripture, you find out this really surprising thing about him, that he could not stand most religious people. And I know even that statement probably bothers some people. It's like, what do you mean Jesus cannot say? Jesus is God. God loves everybody. So Jesus loved everyone. Remember, Jesus loves all the little children of the world, red, yellow, black, and white. They're all precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world, right? So how could Jesus not stand somebody? Because they were religious and they drove him stinking crazy. And if you think I'm exaggerating, go back and read all the encounters that Jesus had the with the religious leaders in his day. They will give you a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart. Not... Jesus would encounter the religious crowd because they were always bird-dogging him. They were always trying to trip him up. They followed him everywhere he went, basically. And he would get sick of them and turn on them and say something really sweet like, You bunch of snakes! How can you who were so evil ever say anything good? Ooh, we should put that on a Christmas card and send it out. Such a nice thought. I mean, he said lots of things like that to the Pharisees. And these were as religious a crowd as there ever could be. And these weren't like 
Crazy people. These are people who would, would fight and die for the reputation of their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to them, Jesus would look at them and say, you people are like a bunch of whitewashed tomb. oh, tombs. Oh, nice marble slab. So pretty on the outside and on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones. You people, you love to wash the outside of the cup and make it look so pretty and clean. But on the inside, you are full of filth and every vile thing. Does that sound like Jesus going, oh, I love you. I'm so fond of spending time with you. I'll tell you what he's saying. I can't stand being around you. You make me mad. You think I'm exaggerating? The man made a whip and he used it. He went where they hung out as a mob and he kicked over their tables and he used that whip to physically run them out of the place. They made him angry. That's how Jesus felt about religion. That's a little unsettling, isn't it? Especially for folks who showed up at church this morning, feeling essentially like we're good religious people. Jesus blows up religion. With every teaching of Jesus, it is as though he is stacking dynamite under the platform of religion. And with his death and resurrection, he's going to push the plunger. He's blowing it up. In the Old Testament, God speaking through Isaiah in Isaiah 26, uh, excuse me, 29, 13 says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. Boy, those words were true 3,000 years ago when they were written, and they are just as true today, aren't they? This is exactly what Jesus was exposing said, religion is about rules made up by men, and they, they reform behavior and will bring us to a place where we, we look a little better. We look like surely we're on the right track, and God must like us better now, right? And God says, the truth of the matter is, it's just a cup that's been cleaned on the outside. Because inside that cup, inside the heart, what I see is a heart that is far from me. Now, for most people, a major piece in the whole religion thing is going to church. And here we are. We're at church. So for those of you online, and you're doing the next best thing, and you're taking part in church online. But I think if we're really honest, there are a bunch of us who show up for church... But we know, we know our own hearts, and we would say, I'm doing the stuff as much as I know how to do. I'm trying to do the stuff, but I have a heart that feels far from God. You ever, you ever feel that way? Maybe you feel that way this morning. Would it freak you out for the preacher to confess? I feel that way sometimes. Sometimes I'm doing the stuff, the spiritual stuff, and yet I feel like my heart's far from God. It's a disturbing thought. Well, this religion, this idea of doing church and doing all kinds of exterior practices that get us right with God, it not only doesn't accomplish what it's designed to do, but it winds up leading us to one of two really bad places. If you'll pursue religion, I can assure you one of two things will be the result. 
Either, number one, you will land at a place where pride takes over. And this is the spiritual jerk. I've got it figured out. I have the answers. That makes me better than you. I've got my act together. So I am above you. This is the Pharisee. This is the person you don't enjoy being around. They like being respected because of their belief system and their behavior. Jesus spoke of, of this result in Luke 18 when he tells a little story. And if you're, if, you know, the New Testament's new to you, I don't want to assume anything. Pharisees in Jesus' day were sort of the ultimate in terms of religious practice. They were Jews, and Judaism was their faith. They were the most serious of, of any people that you can imagine in terms of their faith. They were like professional spiritual people. Knew all the rules, devoted all their time and energy to following, following them. And here's what Jesus said. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, super spiritual guy, and the other a tax collector. Now, we don't think of tax collectors in the same way. Every time in the New Testament they say tax collector, you think of the most despised bad guy in our culture. Maybe the closest thing to it would be the drug dealer who sells drugs to middle school kids. Is that a fair equivalent? We would say bad, bad, you know, whoever that person would be in our culture. That's the other guy. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Look at me. Be impressed. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, as his commentary on this, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That is a picture of one of the two destinations that, that religion will take you to. I fast, I pray, I wear the long robes, I wear the phylactery, I, I am spiritual superman. See my S. And Jesus is saying, God doesn't even hear the prayers of that kind of person. How disturbing is that? He, I mean, he's just saying it flat out. That guy got nada from God. Nothing. By contrast, the other guy who didn't even feel worthy to look up to heaven and is just begging for mercy. He's like, that guy actually left justified. Religion will lead you to a place of pride or on the other end of the spectrum... Religion will lead you to a destination of despair. Why is that? How does it lead you to pride or despair? It really boils down to this. If you're really strong-willed, strong enough-willed that you can make yourself do the list, you can reform your behavior, you can do this group's list of this makes me good and not doing this makes me better. If you're strong enough-willed to do the stuff, you get pride, and if you're not that strong-willed, you realize what an utter failure you, you are. And instead of religion elevating your feelings about yourself, it takes you in the other direction, and be, direction beyond the basement. And you wind up going, oh, I just thought I was a bad person before I actually went to this church or before I joined this group. And now that I've gotten in with them, I feel so much worse about myself because I've tried. And I, you know, I look in the mirror and... 
And, you know, you, you look at yourself and you're going, I can't control my tongue. I still use foul language. I still lose my temper. I still lust when I look at women. I, I just, I'm a mess. I'm still greedy. I've still got anger issues. I've still got unforgiveness. I'm a loser. I give up. I guess I'll just have to go to hell. At least I'll know people when I get there. And so, I mean, we, we laugh about it. But is this not where a lot of people land? The truth be told, there are a bunch of us in this room. We'll come a lot closer to the second destination rather than the first, given the two options, won't we? I, I would dare say, if we had to poll ourselves, including me, I would come closer to landing in the despair group than the pride group. Feeling like, I can't measure up to anybody's list because I know my own heart too well. It's just so fouled up. I mean, there's nothing good in me but Jesus. Religion will lead you to one of those two places. Praise God for Jesus, who becomes the ultimate alternative to religion. And I assure you, Jesus did not come to create another religion. Jesus blows up religion. Jesus is God's answer to the normal. Jesus is God's unusual way to reach man. Religion was the normal way of man trying to reach God, always unsuccessfully. Religion is the reverse of that. Religion is God's unusual plan. Uh, Jesus is God's unusual plan of, of reaching down to us and doing what we could not do for ourselves. It's a revolutionary idea that a relationship with God can be had only through faith, not through any external behavior where we change what we do. Paul talks about this revolutionary idea in Philippians chapter 3, and I want you to hear his words again. He says, If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, you may read that and go, What a cocky guy. It's only cocky if you can't back it up. Paul could back up what he said. He said, You want to talk about having religious credentials? Let me whip out my wallet. And he pulls out his credentials. Holy smoke. He's telling you why he has more reason for confidence in, his, in religion, you know, his, his stuff. First of all, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. The Jewish people thought we are the most favored. So whoever super Jewish is super spiritual and God's pleased with them. And he's like, you can't get more Jewish than I am. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, okay, there's nobody who studied the law and worked harder to obey it than the Pharisees, so cream of the crop there. As for zeal, persecuting the church, I was willing to put my life on the line for what I believed in. And as for righteousness based on the law, faultless, okay, would you agree? Pretty serious list of credentials. When it comes to religion, there is nobody in this room, me included, who could touch how Paul had lived his life if religion could get you there, Paul would be Pope. But he goes on to say, But whatever were gains to me, all of this stuff, I now consider loss for the sake of one thing, for the sake of knowing Christ. And what's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ. I really want to home in on one word there. 
He says, all of these credentials, all the stuff that I could pile up, I want to tell you what that means to me. I consider it garbage. Now, let me just point out, the NIV is a wonderful, strong translation, and this may be the weakest word translated in the New Testament. The writers, in order to sound acceptable, they gave us a sissy word right there. Garbage is not so much the word in the Greek. It can loosely be translated garbage or rubbish. What the word that Paul used there, scubula, what it really means is waste, dung. But it wasn't the nice word for it. If I used the word that he's using, you'd be upset. And you'd talk about it over lunch. That I can't believe the pastor said the word. Let me just put it this way. In modern lingo, the word that he used, people in the 21st century would go, scubula happens. Okay, have you got the word yet? That's the word. Mm-hmm. That's how Paul is talking. Paul said, when it comes to all of my religious practices, it's a big, stinking pile of scubula. And what we need to see today is we've done a lot with scubula. There are a lot of us. We have the most organized set of beliefs. We have such a thought-out, well-planned, organized system. And you know what you have? You have a very organized pile of scubula. Other people, they like to name their religion. They like to identify with others. And so they plant a flag in it. And, you know, some are so... You know, we want to be open-minded and embrace other cultures. And so I'll, you know, I'll put a New Age flag on mine. Or I'll, I'll, you know, put a Buddhist flag on mine. You want to talk about something, by the way, a religion that leads to, to hopelessness? Try Buddhism. Oh, my goodness. You talk about ending at a point of despair. Buddhism is, is the most despairing faith. I don't know how anybody follows that faith that doesn't just want to slit their own wrists. But we'll plant, you know, a Buddhist flag or a New Age or a Hindu or a Mormon flag or a Jehovah's Witnesses flag. But hey, look out. Some of us want to plant a Baptist flag or a Methodist flag or a Church of Christ flag, you know. They're the only ones that have got it right. And you know what? We're all planting flags in piles of scubula. Using labels to define lists of exterior behaviors that are supposed to make us right with God. Some of us are so unconventional, we are more spiritual than others. We won't buy into anybody else's label. So you know what we do? We reach around into everybody's pile and we pull out a little piece of scubula from here and a little piece of scubula from there. We'll borrow something from New Age and we'll borrow something from Christian and borrow something from the Mormons and we'll make our own pile of scubula. But at the end of the day, it's all a big pile. And I don't care what kind of flag you put on it. I don't care what you sprinkle on it or how many times you dunk it in baptismal waters. It's still a pile of scubula. Paul says religious systems designed to give us lists of do's and don'ts are just a big pile of do is what they are. But he offered an alternative thought. He said, I pursued all of that. I consider it waste. 
because you can't get to God that way. He says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This is the most revolutionary idea that has turned the world upside down. World religion universally has been telling us what we need to do in order to get to God. And Paul said, I am willing to count everything I ever pursued as total loss because of this revolutionary idea. I could never do things that would make me right with God, that would please God, that would earn His favor, that would give me a hope of eternal life or a better afterlife. But I have discovered this truth that to be in Christ by faith, to be included in Christ, gives me a righteousness that I do nothing to earn. What a radical concept. I mean, here's the whole thing. All these piles that we're talking about, all of these systems, they are designed to clean us up, to reform us, to make us more acceptable to God, to make us better human beings. And Paul said something completely different from that has been revealed in Jesus. It's not a new religion. It is a radically, diametrically opposed concept where everything else has been about what you need to do to try and get to God. Jesus has shown up and said, you can't get to God, so I have come to completely bridge that. I have come to do all that you failed at i have accomplished that and now by simple faith you receive my righteousness and you do nothing to deserve it by simple faith you wear it like a garment all of your filthiness is removed as a result of your faith and the righteousness of jesus is laid on you and paul said i more than happily let go of everything i held on to before so that i can have this one thing that righteousness that remains. And it's a righteousness I don't even work for. How much better is that? Now the thinkers among us, the ones who, are, who don't just swallow things easily, are probably going, wait a minute now. You're trying to set Christianity apart and say it's not a religion, but Christianity's got its own rules, right? I mean, they called it the law. you still got the Old Testament. And it has hundreds of rules. It does. So does that mean that it's another form of religion? Well, if it was all you had, it would look like it. But we understand the law in light of everything that the New Covenant explains about it. That the law was never designed to get you right with God. And it never accomplished that. The law never got anybody to heaven. That The law never got anybody saved. The law never made man right with God. Because that was never the design of the law. Paul tells us again and again that the point of the law was to demonstrate the sinfulness of man and our need for Christ and a whole different plan for us to be made right with God. I mean, think about the law and how it really works. What's the most basic part of the law? The Ten Commandments, right? I mean, this is the heart of the, of the law. If you want to sum up all those hundreds of rules, the ten biggies, the ones that we know. Let me ask you this. How are you doing with those ten? Feeling pretty good about that? Let's get more specific. Let's start with number one. You ever put anything ahead of God in your life? Anybody besides the preacher ever put anything ahead of God in your life? All right, you flunked number one. Anybody in the room besides me ever steal anything? Bunch of thieves. Anybody besides me ever lie about anything? 
Okay, don't get too nervous because I'm not going to do all ten. We'd get we'd turn, start turning red on some of these. We'll stop raising hands at this one. I'll just ask you: How many of you have ever dishonored your parents? You, you don't have to keep raising your hands. So I'm, I'm just asking. Raise, raise them in your hearts now because we will get really embarrassed. You know, anybody in the room ever uh, ever coveted something that somebody else had? Everybody here. So. What does this reveal about us? Well, I'll tell you what it reveals. That we are a bunch of lying, thieving, idolatrous, parent-dishonoring people. That's what we are. The Ten Commandments did not clean up your life, did they? I mean, every question I ask, we flunked. Then it's a better question of like, is there a commandment, are there three commandments that you've ever kept? In your whole life, you know, probably not. Okay, maybe, maybe we could come up with two. Bottom line is the commandments didn't make you better. The commandments didn't get you closer to God. All the commandments did was expose the wickedness of your heart and the need that you and I have for something bigger than us. The need for grace, forgiveness, and a Savior. Religion is about what you need to do Jesus and Christianity are about what God has accomplished in Christ. So here's what I want to do. I want to take a few minutes, and I just want to, I want to lift up Jesus. I want to remind you of this unusual life and what he's done, and just how shockingly unusual it is, because everything that we would do that's religious is so normal. It actually feels pretty normal doing religious practices. And wouldn't you agree, even like coming to church, for most of us, it just feels normal. It feels comfortable. Like, I think I'll be a better person because I did that. But I want to point to you the heart of the revolutionary thing that God has done that's so unusual. unusual, And it was all accomplished through Christ. And it starts with understanding who Christ is, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. This is unusual in itself. He eternally existed. John's really clear about this. He has always existed, and He is the Creator. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And yet, this eternally existing, only begotten Son of God left the glory of heaven where He reigned and came to earth 2,000 years ago, a little over 2,000 years ago. It's not so shocking that He would come to earth. It is just beyond unusual how He would come to earth that He fully took on human form. And that's a mystery we could just spend a whole other hour talking about. He was fully God and fully man in one person. And he just, as long as I've known the story, it still blows me away, the realization. He did not come as a self-aware adult, but he came as an infant to an incredibly poor family, to the most inexperienced parents that you could find, to be born in a really obscure place as a tiny infant who didn't know who he was. That is really unusual. He lived in a normal enough family that had some things really stacked against it, living in poverty, had a bunch of brothers and sisters. The thing that was so unusual about how he lived the next 30 years of his life was, even though he was living with broken humans and with brothers and sisters who make you just want to pull their hair out, and you know, he never messed up. He was tempted by sin, Hebrews says. Tempted just like we are. But he never gave in to temptation. Boy, that is wild. 
And it winds up being very significant. He lives in, in obscurity in a very, lives most of his life in a very uh, out there mountain village, Nazareth up in Galilee and northern part of Israel. And for about 30 years, the world has no idea who he is. Maybe 200 people live in this village. Outside of that, there's hardly anybody on the planet that knows he even exists for 30 years. That's very unusual. God on earth for 30 years, and he doesn't do anything that we know about. I mean, we get like the story of his birth. As an infant, the flight to Egypt, 12 years old, he visits the temple. That's all we know for 30 years. After 30 years, he explodes on the scene, and he goes public. He begins to teach. And he's going to do this for three and a half years. And his teaching is the most unusual teaching you can imagine. I mean... For one thing, he, he walks around telling a bunch of stories and half the time he doesn't explain what they meant. I mean, not to the crowds that he tells them. To. How weird is that? A farmer went out to sow seeds. Some fell on good ground, some fell on the rocks, some fell among the thorns. And here's how that turns out for them. Have a nice day. And he walks off. And he never tells the crowd what that meant. I think he was saying plant the turnips early this year. You know, they didn't have a clue. Really unusual. And when he did teach, other than using stories or beyond the stories, it was really kind of rare. When he did, he would say things like, you know, when people mistreat you, you should show them kindness. And when they smack you on one cheek, instead of hitting them back, turn the other cheek. Give them a shot at that one, too. What? And when somebody really wants to take advantage of you and they're, they want to take your, your coat away from you, give them your shirt, too. Do what? In fact, the, the way to receive more is you need to give generously. That doesn't make sense. When people curse you, you bless them. When they hurt you, you forgive them. How often do we do that? Oh, how about 70 times 7 and then some. In fact, if you want to gain your life, you're going to have to lose it. If you want to be first, you're going to have to choose to be last. And if you think, I came to bring peace, think again, I came to bring a sword. I came to turn a man against his own family. If you can't give up everything you have, you can't be my disciple. If you can't come to the place that you're willing to hate your mom and dad in order to follow me, you can't follow me. You think that's not a little unusual? You think you could follow this guy and not be radically unusual? His teaching was out there. Now, you would think, since he landed in a place that was so steeped in religion and it was the religion of we serve the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob it would be a good idea to at some level line yourself up with the religious leadership of the day because they had such influence you would think he would try and connect with them and help bridge the gap for them to understand him he did the opposite I mean he's just blowing up their stuff everywhere he goes he's calling them out he's exposing them and they hate him for it I mean, they're constantly plotting and scheming, and on multiple occasions, they try and kill him. I mean, like, you remember the day they picked him up and ran to the edge of a cliff to throw him off, and God apparently just went, er, freeze frame, and Jesus walks off through the crowd. It's not time for him to die yet. I mean, that's the kind of relationship he had with the religious leadership, so unusual. And instead of choosing to hang out with the religious people, oh, my word, when it came to picking friends, I mean, he could pick a loser... Anytime. I mean, he picked a rough crowd. 
people you should not be seen with. And these are the people. He not only let them spend some time with him, he actually liked them. He grew to love them. And these are the people that he looked at and said, I'm going to change the world through you. In fact, I'm going to hand the keys to the whole kingdom over to you. If you don't handle the transition well, the world will be lost and go to hell. And he handed that over to the worst of sinners. And along the way, what he did with these people for the next three and a half years, unusual doesn't even cover it. Everywhere he went, sick people, crazy people, demon-possessed people flocked to him because there really was no help for many of these people. And he did stuff you weren't supposed to do. I mean, people with leprosy, you knew not to touch them. There was a law. They had to cry out when people got within so many steps of them, unclean, unclean, stay away, unclean. And Jesus just would always ignore that. He'd walk right up there to them and put his hands on them to talk to them. You don't do that. That's how you get leprosy. The crazy thing is, after he would talk with them and bless them, the leprosy would go away immediately. He'd go up to people who were just crazy and demon-possessed, and he'd cast out demons, and suddenly they'd be in their right minds. We're talking about crazy people who lived in the tombs, crazy people who couldn't be chained up. People who were demon-possessed and couldn't speak, he'd cast out demons and tell them to speak, and suddenly they'd be healed. One old lady came to him. She was bent over double for 18 years and walked around like this. He goes up to her, casts a demon out, and then heals her, and she stands upright, and she's perfectly fine. A woman who's had an issue of blood for 12 years, tried every doctor, spent every penny she had. She touches Jesus one time and she's cured on the spot. Blind people. There is no help for blindness. In the 21st century, no one has a cure for blindness. And yet blind people come to Jesus. He really does some unusual stuff. I still say one of the weirdest stories in the whole Bible is one of the blind guys that Jesus encounters. And of all the things Jesus could do, he spits in the dirt. I'm like, what are the two cruelest things that you could do to a blind person? I would guess tripping them and rubbing dirt in their eyes. Jesus didn't trip him, but he made spit mud and rubbed it in a blind man's eyes. I mean, you ever get one grain of sand in your eye and feel like you're going to lose your mind? It's like, I can't get it out. Jesus gets a wad of dirt and spit and rubs it in his eyes and then goes, uh, go find the pool of Siloam. Great, Jesus, that's going to be easy for a blind man. Go wash that dirt out of your eye that I just put in it. And the guy's probably fighting mad by this time. And he goes and washes the dirt out of his eye. And suddenly he's not mad at Jesus because he can see clearly. Boy, unusual doesn't even cover that, does it? You just can sum all that up by saying broken people get fixed when they encounter this rabbi from Galilee. And then after three and a half years, three and a half years that are not a myth, they're not a tale or a legend, three and a half years of doing the most extraordinary, unusual stuff the world has ever seen, he does the unthinkable. The Creator allows creation to arrest him, torture and mutilate him, and then murder him. It wasn't a show. It didn't happen in the spirit world. He was as flesh and blood. He felt pain. He stood at risk of death, and just as real as you and I. And the Creator who took on flesh allowed creation 
to torture and murder him. And maybe the most extraordinary part of that whole encounter is that having endured the trials and the scourging, which enough was probably enough for him to bleed out over the span of the next day, they weren't going to let him just be done with that. They had to strip him, expose him, shame him, nail him to a cross, and hang him out there on a hillside for everyone to see as they taunted him. And as he's hanging there, he looks at the people who are murdering him and says, Father, would you forgive them? Because they don't understand what they're doing. The part of that scene that no one present could understand in the moment that you couldn't have you couldn't have appreciated or seen is the really unusual behind the scenes thing that was happening. I don't know what sins we have represented in the room today, but I'm guessing some pretty good ones. We probably represent some doozies. We've already admitted to lying and stealing and coveting and putting things ahead of God and dishonoring parents, but we can probably add to that things like greed and lust and adultery and abortion and divorce. And I mean, we could just go on and on with our shame list. The amazing thing that happened on that Friday was Jesus, who in 33 and a half years never stumbled once, never sinned, he became our sin. He became our divorce. He became our foul language. He became our alcoholism. He became our addiction. He became our adultery. He became. He didn't get a little taste. He became sin. So that the wrath of God could be poured out on our sins. About three o'clock that afternoon, he shouted, Totelestai, it is finished, paid in full. And he breathed his last and he died just like any of us would. They rammed a spear in his side, piercing his vital organs, his lungs, his heart, and everything just began to pour out. Clear evidence he was dead and gone. They took him down and buried him and left him in a dark cave tomb Friday night, all day Saturday, and Saturday night and Sunday morning with the Sabbath finished. Some little ladies who had been with him for most of his ministry, and they just were brokenhearted but wanted to honor him by embalming his body. And they go out to take care of the body with some spices. And the unusual surprises just never stop. They get there and they can't find the body. But what they do find is an angel who asks the question, Why on earth are you looking for the, for the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He's risen just as he told you. And for the next six weeks, Jesus appeared in bodily form. Not only to these women, not only to the twelve, not only to those who had believed, but to hundreds of skeptics, to those who had opposed him. And time and again, he demonstrated to them, you watched me die, now see me risen, see me alive. And if you've got any doubts, put your hand in this gaping hole in my side, feel the nail prints in my hands, feel them in my feet, watch me eat, touch me, know that I am fully risen. What's the big deal about that? Why this bizarre thing that nobody else can do that even the grave can't hold him down? 
Because with His resurrection, Jesus is demonstrating, God the Father is demonstrating that the plan worked. Religion failed, but Jesus has now done what religion could never do. Jesus has taken the weight, the guilt, the punishment that our sin deserved. He allowed it all to be laid on Him, the one perfect sacrifice. And on Sunday morning, when God the Father raised Jesus up from the dead, never to be touched by death again, sin Death and the devil are defeated and God is demonstrating it is the real deal for once in life. There is hope. A new and living way has been made so that man can be connected with God, not through religion, not through reformed behavior, but through simple faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. Now, what do you do with that? For the first time, there is hope. So how do you respond? What do you do to that? Do you do what the early service crowd did, which is a very normal response? Do you offer a Sunday morning golf clap? Jesus is alive. Praise God. Golf balls. Do you get some jewelry with a cross on it? Is that our response? What's your response to this? Do you go to church? Is that an appropriate response to what Jesus has done? Paul maps out an appropriate response to what Jesus has done. He says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 and 13, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's the deal. We started with a very simple thought. Most people... Well, everyone's born into the world on the broad road that's headed to destruction. Most people stay on that road. The only way to get off is you've got to take an exit, but there's a gate to get to that exit. And Jesus says, I'm the gate. How do you pass through the gate? How do you get through Jesus to a place that you escape death and that whole way of living? How do you get there? Paul said, this is what I was willing to sacrifice everything for. It is a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus, and he spells out in these passages, it really comes down to these two things. You've got to believe in your heart. You've got to believe this message. It doesn't mean, it does not mean that in a moment of time all doubt and questions are erased. If it did, we'd be in a lot of trouble. But it means you make a conscious choice that you choose to believe what you can't prove, you don't get to travel back in time 2,000 years and witness Jesus on the cross and witness Jesus resurrected. You have to choose to believe what you cannot prove. The best that you can. Mustard seed faith, a little bit of faith, is sufficient. You have to choose to believe in what Jesus, who He is and what He's done. And in doing that, don't miss this, You've got to abandon every other pursuit that would make you right with God. It can't be Jesus plus all this other stuff that I do over here to make me right with God. You have to do what Paul did. You have to take all that other stuff and write it off and call it what it is. Scuvala. It may have been good stuff. It's still scuvala. It's just scuvala with perfume on it. Going to Sunday school ain't going to get me there. Going to church ain't going to get me there. Skipping rated R movies, listening to Power 88, none of those things are going to get me there. Faith in Christ alone. That's half of the equation. 
believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead. But what's the other half of what Paul said? You must confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Don't miss this. Over and over, the New Testament affirms this. There has to be an outward confession of an inner change. If there's no outward confession, there is no inner change. And some people have been living this lie. Some people have been believing this lie. You said a little prayer. You said a prayer. You may have said that prayer with me in church. You may have said it when you were in Bible school. You may have gotten dunked in a spiritual pool after you said this little prayer. I don't know. But if you've never in any way lived out this faith, there isn't a saving faith inside. I'm not trying to create doubt here. I'm just trying to point out these two things go hand in hand. The confession of the Lordship of Christ, that's not just a statement that you make in a moment of time. It's a reality that you live. Jesus is Lord. That term means master, controller. He's the one in charge of my life. What this means now is I'm no longer on the broad road. I'm no longer following the crowd. I'm on a different path. I'm on a path that's determined by Jesus. I get up every day and have to discover what direction that path takes as I seek Jesus and He points me in a fresh direction. I do that every day because Jesus is my Lord and I can't just believe these things about Jesus and then live how I want to live. If I believe this about Jesus, I've got to live differently. I don't just run around and say Jesus is Lord. It means every day Jesus gets to chart the path for me and my path doesn't look like your path. It's going to be different because Jesus is a personal Lord. It's a personal relationship and that's what's so cool. You don't have to do what I do because you're walking a different path. We believe in the same Jesus. He's the same Lord to us, but it's so personal. It's why this isn't a list of rules. It's so dynamic. It's so cool. And we'll share some things in common because when this happens, an unusual thing happens, an unusual love for people, an unusual love for God, an unusual joy, an unusual sense of hope and passion and direction and meaning, an unusual sense of security and peace because Christ lives in me. I would count everything else lost, count it as dung, as scubula, for this one thing, that I may have Christ and be found in Him, possessing a righteousness that is not my own, a righteousness that comes only by faith in Jesus. You can't earn it. You'll never work your way to it. It's yours today if you would choose to place your faith in Jesus And let Him simply come in and be who He is. He is Lord. He is Master. Let Him be your Lord. He invites that today. And all He really asks from you today is a yes. A yes for Him to come in and be who He is. To forgive, to reign, to lead, to transform from the inside out. It's the most important decision of life. And it's the best decision we ever make. Would you bow together with me as we pray? Lord, please, by the work of your Holy Spirit, would you search us today? You know exactly where we stand, but we get cloudy and and confused about that. Would you search our hearts, and would you give us great clarity today to understand either that we are in Christ secure in Him or that we need today to abandon religion, that we need to let go of whatever's held us back and today trust Christ and receive Him, His forgiveness and His Lordship. 
while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want to ask you now, how many of you know that what I've just described is already a reality in your life? You've trusted Christ, you've received His forgiveness, and He is your Lord. Would you just raise your hand as a silent testimony to that fact? Awesome. Lots of people around the room. Thank you for that. You can put your hands down. I want to just say a word to those of you who didn't raise your hands, to those of you watching and listening online, that you couldn't raise your hand to that. Thanks for your honesty in that. There is no shame whatsoever in, in that admission. The truth of the matter is nobody's born right with God. That's why Jesus says you had to be born again. My question to you now is a simple one. Jesus has done everything to make you right with God. The only thing that remains is for you to choose to believe, to say yes. What today would prevent you from receiving Christ's forgiveness, His salvation, His love in your life? If today that's a step that you want to take, I'm going to invite you to, to do that by faith. In praying a simple prayer, inviting Jesus to come in and be your Lord and Master. I just want to ask right now and again, I, I, just, I don't want there to be a concern of anybody thinking, What's that, what are other people going to think about me? This is between you and God. But if today you realize, I, I need that, I need Christ's forgiveness, and I need Him to become my Lord today, would you just raise your hand right now? Are there others? Thank you. Thank you. Others. We're just going to take a moment. Anybody else? Just raise your hand and hold it up. Okay. Thank you. For everyone who just raised your hand, others of you online that you know, in your heart, you're saying, yes, I need that today. Would you pray with me a simple prayer? And in fact, I'm going to ask the entire church family to just pray this prayer out loud as a confession with me of just trusting Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I need you. I believe in you. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead, and I'm trusting you to save me. Would you come into my life, forgive my sins? Would you be my Lord? I give you control of all that I have and all that I do. Thank you for loving me, and thank you for saving me. Amen. Lord, I thank you for hearing and answering the prayers of people who long to be right with you. And I pray that today you would seal this moment by your Holy Spirit. God, that there would be an awareness of transformation that's happening on the inside. And I pray that you would pour your life and your goodness into us. We thank you for that. Thank you for your love. And Lord Jesus, thank you for your passion for the cross and the victory and forgiveness that you've won for us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.